0: Sir Ken Robinson gave a hugely significant talk on TEDx back in 2006. I know this because it's one of the best talks I've ever seen anywhere, and I've seen Sir Ken's videos on TEDx YouTube many times, and I've shown them to training delegates and share them with friends and family. According to TEDx, and you can see the statistics when you click on the link, which I'll provide in the episodes or to the show today... Uh, the video I'm speaking about, the one back in 2006, has been uh, checking my screen now. It's been seen 62,164,420 times. That's the number on my screen as I record this in September 2019. And today I am privileged to say that the speaker on that stage is none other than Sir Ken Robinson himself. This is episode 54 of the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Hi, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett-Hayes, and this is the podcast for you, for training business professionals, training business owners all around the world. Every Thursday, if this is your first time here, uh, we have an episode every Thursday. And if it's not your first time here, welcome back. The goal of the show, I say it every single week, is to help people to start to grow and to scale their training business. And by that, by they and there, I'm talking about you, the, the listeners to this program. Now, as I mentioned before, the music, I am delighted today, I'm really delighted to bring you an interview with today's guest, who is Sir Ken Robinson. He's joining us live from LA this morning, where he lives. I'm in Ireland, so that's about nine hours difference between us. Why Sir Ken? Well, Sir Ken, if you've seen his TEDx videos, and if you haven't, you should, he's an expert on human creativity. And why have him on this podcast? Well, because as training business owners, we are training people. To perform and excel at their jobs, but we're effectively doing this by building on top of what's already there. We're building on top of the training or education which our delegates have had through years in the formal education systems wherever they've grown up in the world. What our clients, people who pay us to train their employees and people, want us to do is not just to train or develop them, but to help them to develop themselves and the organizations they represent in other words to be creative to harness creativity and to be creative problem solvers for their organizations and that's the purpose of having sir ken on the show today and i think you'd really really enjoy this as i did So, Ken, good morning and welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning, Mark. It's a great pleasure.
0: You gave a talk uh, in 2006, which has been seen approximately 62 million times. And it, it was, in my mind, simply the best TEDx talk ever. I, I think many people I've spoken to have seen it. Um, and it's about a subject which touches us all and, and which could, should concern us all. And that's the education of young people who, in fact, grow up to be the kind of people sitting in the training rooms of people listening to this podcast. But before you um, did that, you would published a book entitled Out of Our Minds, Learning to be Creative, in which you stated that education and training are the keys to the future. What are some of the central themes or ideas in that book?
1: Well, yes, thanks, Mark. It's, uh, actually, you're right. It, that particular talk was at the main TED conference. You know, The TEDx events have been a fantastic spin off. I think that, I mean, there have been thousands of TEDx events now. Uh, which is amazing. I mean, really astonishing that it's been taken up in such large numbers. Um, that first talk was 2006, before the TED conference itself had generated TEDx or before it had really uh, gone online and gone public. And the talk I gave then it was called "Do School, Kill Creativity?" It was it was a private conference essentially. There were about um, 1,200 people there, and. The guy who runs TED, Chris Anderson, called me a little while later and said that they were thinking of putting some of these talks on the website and could include mine. And I said, well, let me take a look at it. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll check it. And my wife and I had a look at it. Terry and I had been together for 40 years, you know, and a bit, well, it was 12 years less than that at the time. And so, so I showed it to her. So what do you think? And she said, it's all right. And <laughs> I wish you'd worn a different shirt. <laughs> so, you know, let's just stick with the point. Anyway, the thing is, it has as to say it's gone on to be viewed online over 62 million times now, and it's been been seen by some multiple of that. So it does obviously ring a bell of some sort, and and that's important. You know, it's um, it's something that is uh, it, it resonates with all kinds of people because of the. Uh, I, I think people can see that it's essentially true that we have all kinds of talents and abilities as we, you know, we head into our, the education system, but too often we don't discover what they are. And to me, this is a really big issue because you know, all children are born with immense capacities. What becomes of them depends you know, almost entirely on opportunity, circumstance, and, and very large as part of that on, on the education training systems that we make available. You know, there's a big difference, isn't there, between a capacity and a capability. We all have we all have tremendous capacities. I, I was at an event uh, last week in Canada. I asked people how many of them there. There were about 2,000 people from the energy sector. I said, how many of you here speak more than one language? And quite a few people put their hands up. And I kept going until I asked how many spoke five languages. And I still got half a dozen people who put their hands up. And, of course, when you ask them about why they speak these languages, it's it's not because they're linguistically gifted or they've spent a lot of money on language tutors. It's because they grew up perhaps where two or three languages were spoken. They, uh, they had parents who came from different cultural backgrounds. You know, they're immersed in them or they moved at an earlier age into some other linguistic uh, culture. And the point is that we could all speak multiple languages. We don't uh, normally because we're not exposed to them at the right age. But we have the capacity for it. And we have the capacity for all kinds of other things as well which aren't developed through lack of opportunity. And, uh, and these days, it's becoming more and more important that we recognise the depth of these capacities. And, and that's really what the book is about, that there's far more to us than we've been led to believe by our education. And there are all sorts of reasons why our education tends to overlook some of these deeper capacities.
0: I'm minded, uh, as I listened to you there, uh, of an extract from Hard Times by Charles Dickens. And I think somewhere in the the beginning, um, if I quote this correctly, now what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else, and root out everything else. Um, you can only form the minds of, of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. I take it you're completely in disagreement with that. Why is why is human creativity so important to human productivity?
1: Well, firstly, I'm I'm not against facts. <coughs> Excuse me, um, in themselves, I mean it'd be an odd thing to to oppose, wouldn't it? Uh, but there's a big difference uh, between what, you know philosophers call propositional knowledge you know, in other words you know what we take to be the case that uh, that you know, america has 50 states so that uh, britain currently is part of europe <laughs> don't go there i'm going to say when this goes out now that's true <laughs> i actually have a habit of shifting around a bit but, mm. but knowledge that something is the case uh, is you know a very important part of human understanding and so i'm not, I'm not opposed to what we think of as factual knowledge. Uh, of course not. I mean how could you be? Uh, and we might come back to that in a minute. but it's it's by no means an exhaustive account of of the the nature of human understanding. There are other forms of knowledge which are to do with practical capabilities and being able to put ideas into practice. and we live in the world, it's been shaped by Human skill and expertise uh, with with tools and with uh, you know the organisation of systems and and how they operate uh, you know whether they're physical systems, social systems, mechanical systems, economic systems. You know, it's the, the phrase we use. Now that is knowing how, and knowing that, and knowing how are two very important parts of uh, what should be a, a part of our education systems. And there's a third area uh, as well that you might call knowing this, which is. What it is to be alive, and uh, the, the nature of experience. What it is to love somebody. What it is to feel free and anxiety. What it is to feel belonged, or to feel you know that you belong, or to feel isolated. And those qualities of human experience, the the character of human life and of being alive in the world, is uh, to some degree the the domain of the arts. It's 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 through the arts, especially, that we we come to. Grapple with this relationship between our interior world and the world around us. So there's a a broad scope of human understanding, and factual knowledge is part of it. But you're quite right that the the Dickens line from, and I'm I'm very impressed by the way that you've memorised it. I I think I think you should probably get out more, (laughs) Mark. Speaks of a rather big social life, if you don't mind me saying so. No, but I think you know that what, what has happened. And it was happening then, and it's it's actually serious. It's a ve- it's a very opposite quotation. I, I was reading it uh, myself in, in the last year. Again, that that uh, this preoccupation with a certain type of understanding, a certain type of intellectual operation, is isn't recent. It's deep in the roots of the origins of mass systems of education and the industrial revolution. And what we're seeing now is a particular. Um, extension of it, because uh, as the systems progress, we seem to become more and more obsessed, although in different ways, with standardization, with uh, sanctioning certain sorts of understanding in the curriculum, with marginalizing other sorts of understanding, and particularly uh, we've created this sort of multi-billion dollar, uh, stroke, euro, stroke pound uh, industry in standardized testing. And it all, I think, has become um, a, a terrible distraction from what education should be doing. And and I do believe that we should be looking very hard at a whole range of competencies, including creativity, which I take to be one of the central defining features of, of human intelligence.
0: I think, if I, if I recall, you defined creativity as, as uh, is it coming up with original ideas which are value, something like that?
1: Yeah, um, there, there are three related ideas here, which I talk about in the book. By the way, there's a new edition of the book out. Uh, It came out a year before last. The publisher publisher asked me if I'd you know, be, actually, this is the third edition. You know, it's it's that good, Mark. You know, it's, a, it's like a fine wine. It, it just gets better. It really. ages. <laughs> it doesn't get a bit bitter towards the end. There's no doubt to it. <laughs> The dregs. <laughs> <laughs> the dregs the final chapter, a bit unpalatable, to be honest. <laughs> no, but I write, you know what it's like. I mean, I you write right. The very first version of the book I did uh, was pretty much done with, you know, the the door locked from the outside, and my wife and and the my my agent standing outside, refusing to let me leave or have food until I finished it, and, uh, and it came out pretty well, I think. You know, for a man who was dehydrated with low blood sugar, <laughs> but, they, but it but it it did come out okay. But ten years on, I wanted to do a, to upgrade it, and I did, and that was a, a few years back now, and and a couple of years ago, the publisher asked me if I wanted to make any more changes, because you know it continues to do well, and I think people enjoy the book and find it helpful, and I retitled it. It's it's now called Out of Our Minds: The Power of Being Creative, and there was a reason for the shift, um, and and it's this that the creativity is sometimes thought of, I think, as well. I know it to be true, as some slightly exotic power that people in certain types of occupations have, or certain social eccentrics seem to display, and the reality is very different. And it is that creativity is, as I say, a defining feature of human life. You know, in most respects, we are like the rest of life on Earth, and I think we make far too much of the differences. And you know, today, as we're we're speaking, there are literally tens of millions of kids on the street. Uh, campaigning uh, for action on the climate crisis. And these problems that we face in the environment are created by us, by human beings. It's not all the other species that are fast disappearing that have created the problem we have. And this is the downside of our capacity, but the capacity itself is is very interesting to understand. We do not live in the world as other creatures seem to do. We do in most respects. And we seem to have lost sight of that, particularly since the industrial period began. You know, we're mortal. We have short lives, relatively speaking. We depend on the earth and what we can make of its resources to be here at all. But other creatures live in the world pretty much as they find it. You know, you don't find other creatures going around sort of creating musical instruments and building civilizations and having salons and making iPhones. You know, we do that. And uh, human beings have always i mean modern human beings i'm talking about homo sapiens we have uh, always lived in a virtual reality we live in a world of ideas we have complex languages we have belief systems we have uh, very advanced uh, social social economic systems uh, uh, you know extraordinary technologies which continue to evolve at a rapid rate and we don't just enter the world we shape it we create it we recreate it and we move into the world and inhabit a world that a hundred billion other people before us have also been in. And and we, you know, the world isn't a blank space that we enter. We're a place rich with culture and ideas and history and achievements and and all of the rest. So we've always lived in this virtual space. And all of these things are evidence of the profound reach of human creativity. I mean, look around the room. You're surrounded by, by technologies. You're wearing clothes that have been fabricated from... Fibers in natural man made that have involved people in industries across the planet, the food that turns up every day, you know, the the travel, the, the modes of transport you use, the house you live in. You know, everything represents the huge diversity of human skill, expertise, and original thinking. Uh, so to me, it's absolutely fundamental. And there are three big terms to say there's imagination, which is the I think the founding capacity, it's not a single skill, but it's, a, it's an amalgam of capacities that enable us to bring into mind things that aren't present. And we take it utterly for granted that we can do that, that we can anticipate the future. We can't predict it, but we, we try to anticipate it. We can revisit the past. We can step outside our current situation, try and see things other people see them. So imagination is critical. It, it takes us away from being locked into the here and now. Uh, we can live in other other mental spaces creativity is a step on from that it's the ability to put your imagination to work it's so to speak applied imagination uh, you know i mean you could be imagined i say this in the book you could be imaginative all day long and never do anything you know you'd say there's mark you know i mean he's been lying on the bed all day long you know but uh, in, in a fit of imagination you know but what's he done well absolutely nothing you know it's a it's a it's just not day measure that yeah That's right, it's just another day for Mark on the bed, you know. Um, (laughs) But but what I mean is that the creativity uh, is a practical process. It's transitive. You have to to be creative, you have to do something like you are doing. You have to make something come about. It could be in the world of ideas or in the physical or material world. But there has to be some kind of practical uh, endeavour with the pursuit of an outcome of some sort. And and we know quite a bit about that. I mean, I, I define this in the book as the process of having original ideas that have value. Three bits are important. It's a process. I mean, sometimes things come to you fully formed. Uh, and other times it takes a long, it's a long process of evolution before things come together in a way that, that quite hadn't happened before. Actually, I came across a very interesting example of this the other day. Um, it perplexed me for a while. <laughs> when do you think Uh, somebody first thought to put wheels on a suitcase. When do you think that was?
0: I'd say it was on an episode of Dragon's Den or Shark Tank about six years ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You're more pessimistic than I am. But but it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, If you look at movies of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, it's just a thing, you know, that, that people carry great heavy suitcases. And, you know, you see them walking along railway stations, putting the suitcases down, picking them up again and carrying on. Uh, we've ever since people traveled, we've had to put things into containers and take them with us. And it the, the first person first time it was uh, that somebody thought of putting a wheel on a suitcase. And by the way, we've had wheels for quite a long time, haven't we? I mean, they've been around. But the first time somebody put a, a, a wheel on a suitcase was 1970. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> you think really? I, I had no we, idea. I, yeah, well, I think the, the prior invention was a sort of frame that you strapped the suitcase to, and then some bright spark thought, actually, there's uh, <laughs> a the thing, we could put the wheel on the suitcase. But for hundreds of years, you know, thousands of years, people were dragging these things and putting them on the back of wagons that had wheels. So it took an awful long time to think to put the wheel on the suitcase. So sometimes this is a very long process, sometimes it's quite a quick thing, but it is a process of trying things out. And it could, you know, if you're writing a novel or working on a sonata or doing a business plan uh, or trying to work out a marketing strategy, it often doesn't come, there may be a moment of inspiration. Commonly there is. There's a spark of something, but then you have to work on it and evolve it. So it's a process. It's about coming up with ideas that are fresh. They don't have to be fresh, the whole of, of humanity, but they certainly need to put your head into a different space. Um, and I say that they have to be of value. And, uh, and just what I mean by that is that creativity is a, is a kind of interwoven process of coming up with ideas and then working out whether they're any good. Now, I mean, the, the immediate question, of course, is, well, what values do you apply to them? And that's a, that's a very important question, which you can only really answer for yourself in context. I mean, some people are pretty impass- impressed with the AK-47. You know, it's a very powerful weapon that does what it's designed to do. I mean, as a weapon, you might conclude that it it does its job perfectly well. Do you approve of weapons, of those weapons? Well, that's a moral judgment that you have to make. So creativity is always wound up or almost always wound up in questions of judgment as well. And what those judgments are depends on the purposes you have in mind and the context in which you're making them. So it isn't just some um, uh, kind of epiphenomenon of Human uh, activity, as I see it, human you know, human culture, is the fruit of this deep capacity we all we're all born with—a set of capacities for imagination, imaginative thinking, and for creative production. I'm I'm
0: just thinking of what you said about standardisation there, and in your 2013 talk, um, "How to Escape Education's Death Valley," you said that education is based on well, not diversity but conformity. So I think by that you also mean standardisation. What we as as trainers um, see in the corporate training room or the office, which you could say the grown, we could call that the grown-up classroom, is is evidence of this conformity or standardization. And when we're asked to, or by our clients to help their employees, their people to be creative, um, to help them to solve pressing management problems or, or problems of a strategic nature, we come up against that. Um, that standardization that conformity so how do we engender the kind of creativity you're talking about um in the corporate classroom in the face of the conformity or standardization which most of us i'm putting my hands up here as adults have been through
1: well the first thing is that it that it's important to see uh, creativity as an operational idea um you know there are various myths about creativity, which I, I discuss in the book. One of them is that it's about special things. So I've often asked, I mean, and you might do this when you've got a room full of people, I often ask people how creative they think they are. And then I ask them to think of that on a 10-point scale. I've done this on a lot of training events. Um, and, and you say, so while you're thinking about that, how intelligent do you think you are? Of course, that always creates a bit of a rustle. <laughs> I can imagine. So I think that's on a ten-point scale, uh, and then I ask people. to say, yeah, "I'm going to ask you to put your hand up," and, and reassure them they don't have to. You know, they're they're grown ups. You know, they don't have to go along with this if they don't want to. Um, but it's, you know, that it's just a straw poll. But do that, and I think you'll be interested to see how people rate themselves. Uh, and the third question to ask is whether they gave themselves different marks for both questions, which is a really interesting question, I think. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One of them is that people often don't rank themselves uh, very highly on creativity. I mean, if you will, you, you typically get it some kind of bell curve, which levels out around about six or seven. I mean, you, you may well find a group that differ from that. and, and you should, But it's a good point of conversation. But the real point about it is, <clears throat> to ask people what they had in mind when they gave themselves a mark, uh, you know, why did they give themselves six or four or eight? What what conception of creativity was in their mind when they did that? And typically, people give themselves low marks because because of these misconceptions. Uh, because really, everybody should be giving themselves a ten, I think. But I'll, I'll tell you why about that in a minute. The, the, what people. Often think you've asked them just as a reflex is when you say how creative are you? What they think you're asking is how artistic are you? So they, they you know, they like do you play guitar? You know, have you got have you got a set of maracas in the house?
0: Do, <laughs> do you talk? paint?
1: Yeah, do you paint? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, are, you know, are, are you into you know slam dancing or or poetry, something like that? And and it's a very deep misconception that people have that creativity is a synonym for being artistic. Now, this is not to say the arts are not areas of creative uh, achievement. Of course they are. I spent a lot of my life uh, campaigning for the importance of the arts in education for a whole bunch of different reasons, not only, but also including the arts. You were involved in the Royal Ballet as well, weren't you? So- I was. I was. Some of my performance are still, for the, <laughs> still, still the talk of the green room, are <laughs> <laughs> Mainly, people wondering how I slipped through security backstage in the tutu. But, <laughs> and the tutor Don't knock it until you've tried it. But <laughs> there's not nothing wrong with it except the size, frankly. So, so you know, people do think you're talking about, let's say, about being artistic. But the fact is, you can be creative in anything, anything that involves your intelligence, which is the point of the second question. But you can be creative at mathematics, uh, running a business, uh, cooking a meal, uh, designing a house, uh, planning a route. Uh, if, if you think of any human activity that involves uh, judgment and perception, and it's a potential scene of creative achievement, and that's evident everywhere. And if you apply that definition, the process of having original ideas and have value, it, it, it's clear that creativity is a function of, of human intelligence more generally so that's the first thing and the, the second is that people often think that creativity is about particular sorts of people that in other words you know that, that it's it's some yes like designers yeah yes it's associated with being unconventional socially in some way you know that you can spot creative people yeah I mean, and companies i say this again in the book that companies often divide the workforce into two kind of broad groups, you know, the, the the creatives and the suits. And and you can tell who the creatives are be, because they don't wear suits. And, you know, and, and they come in late, you know, because they've been <laughs> struggling with an idea. Now, I'm not knocking that at all. I mean, I've worked with a lot of you know, so-called creative organizations in, in what are often known as the creative industries. And, and, I mean, creative industries are those that depend upon the generation of intellectual, you know, of creative content for their, uh, for their existence, for their success, you know, they generate IP, and that can be in any field at all. You know, anything from fashion to movies to um, uh, to software development uh, and technology. Uh, so again, that's not confined to a particular type of person or activity. Sometimes creative people, I I know, I mean, in terms of original thinking, you'd walk past them in the street and, and mistake them for you know for um, you know a member of some some other profession entirely from the one that they're in. It isn't. It, it, it's not a question of personal flamboyance, you know, or a particular set of social characteristics. And it's not confined to um, uh, to creative departments. The fact is that companies that are creative can be creative in almost everything they do. It, it, you can, some companies are very good at product development. Some are good at systems development. Some are good at things like supply chain management and so on. Walmart's one of the biggest companies in the world. They don't produce anything at all. I mean, they say, they, in you know, Amazon, Uh, for example, you know, it's tremendously, it's the most valuable company on the planet. Um, But they, latterly, I mean, they've started to move more in the direction of of products, but their real real success was in systems management and, you know, online, not just online sales, but then developing this vast array of of, um, cloud computing services. So it's a, it's a systems company uh, as much as anything else. Well, now, and also, of course, a data company, but that, you know, came, came to sort of spun out. of Yeah. So it, it isn't just about particular things. It's about. And the third misconception is that, you know, you're creative or you're not. And that's the end of it. And the fact is, you can help people to be more creative, which is what the training piece is about, as, long as you understand what it how it works and, and some of the constraints and what some of the advantages are. So. There are two things, just to, to conclude this. One is, there is, so to speak, a psychology of creativity, which is what's the, how does this process operate? And for trainers, I think it's important to see that, that for a lot of people in organizations, and, I mean, good trainers know this anyhow, and I'm not suggesting they don't, uh, but often managers don't when they bring trainers in. You can't just say to people, okay, guys, you know, girls, let's just get creative now. Because if you if you, if, you're not, if you don't know how this works, it's like saying, should we speak Romanian? a bit you think well i don't know how to do that Uh, you need to learn some techniques to start to see how the process can loosen up and how it can be focused so there's a psychology of creativity which i think should form a big part of training but there is so to speak a sociology of creativity too which is what are the circumstances what are the that create constraints or create imperatives for creative work particularly in companies and one of them is that creativity often flourishes best where people are working across conventional departmental boundaries. And the reason that is important is because creativity often thrives from from, benefits from different perspectives and points of view and different sorts of experiences. Now, there's a lot to say about that, but that's simply the matter of it. The second is that creativity involves taking risks. So you have to figure out where the boundaries of risk are. And the third is that Creativity can mean challenging the status quo. And if if the company as a whole is intolerant of that, then they really shouldn't unreasonably expect people to take the chances that creativity requires that they should. So it isn't just about getting people in the room and giving them techniques. You have to look company wide and say, Are you really serious about this? Because if you are, you have to be open to new possibilities that will go beyond this training room. Mm.
0: You said on another occasion, the real uh, role of leadership in education, which is what we're talking about, is not and should not be command and control. The real role of leadership is climate control, creating a climate of possibility within an organization, which I think is what you're alluding to there. If you were designing a leadership training program from scratch, in accordance with your beliefs, Sir Ken, um, such that it helps, you know, leaders to think with originality, what, what would that program look like to you?
1: Well, the first thing is, is that the, the, the comments I'm making there aren't just about education. As you know, they apply to organizations wherever they are. And I've, I've worked with a lot of corporate organizations. I mean, the, the, say last week, I was talking with a whole group of energy corporations. Um, and the principles apply, really. I mean, there's the, twofold focus on the nature of creative work itself and the context in which it takes place. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. I worked for uh, a while ago with one of the major airline companies and they were having a problem with customer service. And I was asked by one of the key people there in the customer service field, if I'd get involved and go and do some work with all their senior managers. And so I said, I would. And, uh, but I said, just tell me a bit about the, the background and, and what it came to is that the, the senior management of the company at the sea at the level uh, had a very conventional background and were very driven by metrics. And what the people in the customer service end of the company knew was that what differentiates airlines these days is not just the equipment you fly in, but the quality of experience you have while you're on board and before you get on board. And that's particularly true. Uh, if you're doing long flights, it, it's, it's how well you're treated. And so that face-to-face relationship you have with the cabin crew, with the check-in uh, desk and all of the above, it's that that makes you decide to go to this airline or not the other, line, the other airline, you know, given uh, any kind of differentials in price. It's the quality of the human experience that people are drawn to. And I said, well, that's exactly right, and that's what we need to think about. And, you know, it's the culture of the, of, of the airline, not just the technology of the airline that really matters. He said, "Well, that's what we're trying to get done." I said, "So, what does the CEO think about all that?" He said, "Well, he doesn't really agree with it. He thinks it's it's really about technology and it's all about um, it's all about the the uh, the margins." He said, "But actually, we're getting a new CEO in six months' time." I said, "Well, look, uh, why don't you call me in six months' time? <laughs> because because it, 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 it sounds to me like he's the problem, and and the thing is that people pick it up. We know that it's absolutely." Uh, impossible, I think, to overstate the importance of the leadership of an organisation. If the leaders aren't bought in, it's very difficult to make the change that you want to make. Otherwise, I'm talking about a company uh, or an organisation. Uh, I mean, there's a different case if you're looking at national movements or international movements. You know, like we're seeing now with the climate crisis, a lot of change can happen from the ground up, providing that there is. Um, uh, the possibility, you know, of of this reaching further up the the system, and that's particularly true in uh, where there are elections involved and so on. But but very often, you know, people get their cue from the leadership, and you can see it. I mean, if you think what's been happening in Ireland, you know, with the change of leadership there politically, how how it affects the tenor of the country completely. And and it's. In, I, I live in America just now. I mean, I've lived through three presidencies here. I say lived in a figurative sense, you know, but. We've gone, you know, through, uh, I had, when we first came here, George Bush was the president. We had Obama for eight years. Now we've got Trump. It, it's, you, know, you can't overstate the difference it has. People take their cue. And, and the reason is the culture, as I see it, you know, the, which is, I mean, I define creativity in a particular way. I mean, the way I think of culture is the the values and forms of behavior that characterize different social groups. And you know that. We all know this. The, the Culture in organisations is palpable. You get a feel for it. The, 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 you know, the, the minute you spend, you walk through the door, you telephone. it. There are two aspects to, to the culture organisation. organisations, I see it. Uh, I think of them as habits and habitats. But the, the habits of the organisation are the routines, the rituals, you know, as they say, the way we do things around here. You know, so, uh, you know, the it's easy to see it in a school, you know, where you have bells that ring and and. Uh, the rituals of moving from building to building uh, for different subjects and, you know, term times and all of the above. But companies have those rituals too, you know, whether they have a corner office, who's in it, how it's configured, uh, you know, where the staff meet, who they they generally meet with, um, what what the lines of accountability are, what the management structures are. Um, So, you know, the the habits of the organisation, the beliefs and the values that infuse it are one big area. And the other is the physical environment in, in which people live, you know, how the place is laid out. And a lot of companies have, have become wise to that and the need to think differently about the space. But in the end, it's the relationships that really matter. And and culture is very much about permission. It's about what's all right and what isn't all right. It, it, it struck me a while ago, I was talking about this, that uh, it, it's interesting to see how the permissions change. In America now, over the past number of years, every state in the union has approved legislation for same-sex marriage. And that's great, I think. And, and, and what's interesting about it is it didn't happen because members of Congress had a retreat in Aspen you know, and decided that it was about time to sell this important issue to the electorate. What happened was that the mood changed in the country and the, uh, the leadership had to respond to that. And they did. It wasn't untroubled. I mean, a lot of people sacrificed a great deal to make it come about. But you know, my wife is from Ireland. She's from the north. I have spent a lot of time in Ireland. I, I, the first time I went to Ireland was in the, uh, let's see, the uh, late, uh, no, so the, the, the late seventies, I guess. Um, well, you can, be, you know, that was the height of the troubles in yes, the north. Yes, difficult time. Yeah, absolutely. And I was back. To, I was involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland for quite a time, and and consider the changes. I mean, the idea that. that that Ireland, the South, uh, was the first country in the European Union to approve same-sex marriage, was unthinkable.
0: Yes, I can, I can, I can confirm that uh, the belief systems have changed radically in, Radical. in, in my lifetime.
1: Yeah, really in, in a way that's, that's that, that, that I say was, was unthinkable 30, um, thirty forty years ago. You no, know, you can't smoke now in a public house in Ireland. <laughs> you know. I mean seriously. That's so true. I was saying that, you know, if you'd gone into a coma thirty years ago and you woke up in the middle of Dublin, and you know, you'd walk into a pub surrounded by same-sex couples who couldn't smoke. You'd think, <laughs> hang, on, hang on what, 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 what happened here? <laughs> I mean, what, what is the 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 boundary shifted and it's it's a kind of it's a, it's a dynamic that takes place between the members of a culture and the leadership. It kind of grows out of the shifting interactions. It's why we think of social systems as complex dynamic systems. They do change over time in ways that sometimes it's hard to perceive in the moment, but it becomes clear over time. But the response of, of good leaders is to recognize those shifting dynamics and to adjust the boundaries of mission admission, the interest of the, the flourishing of the organization. So if the leaders aren't bought in, this is the point I'm making in a company If they're they're stuck in a particular mindset uh, and can't see the opportunities that could be created by unleashing the capacities of the organization, that becomes a problem. So when you ask how I go about it, I think the important thing is to begin to talk with the leadership and ask them how serious they are about this. What are the issues? What are things they're trying to cope with? And to some extent, I think it's important to recognize that creativity isn't a threat in an organisation, it's really the pulse of the 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 life of the organisation. There's a series of pretty sobering statistics about corporate mortality. You know, over the past seventy or eighty years or so, the the lifespan. I mean, all companies are mortal, like human beings are. Uh, you know, the 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 average lifespan of a company now, a, a big company, uh, is a, is less than thirty years, and and sometimes considerably less than that. Uh, over the past 70 years, the lifespan of organizations has got shorter while the lifespan of individuals has tended to increase overall. A lot of companies stumble along for a few years and keel over. Very few companies make it past 50 years or 100. I mean, you can't yeah. Think, think of the companies that you know. You know, How old are they? And look at the most important ones now, and most of the key ones at the top of the Fortune 500 are less than 30 years old. That's true. And a lot of the... Vet- companies that we grew up with are long dead now. Like Kodak, yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's a spectacular example. There a lot of the companies, you know, the kind of landmark companies that we thought were you know, just part of the natural order of things disappeared without trace. It, it happens, and it's because they're organisms. They're not mechanisms. They thrive under certain conditions, and they, if we adapt to the changing environment, then the company survives, and it carries on to a new lease of life, and some of the big companies have done that. And and, and some of the other ones, too, That you know, are less... No, they're not in the top rank of, of world companies, but very famous and successful companies like Burberry, you know, that were turned around by a new vision for how the company could operate. Swarovski is a very interesting case uh, as a company that's become an absolute, um, uh, kind of signifier of luxury in uh, not just in in uh, fashion now. You know, it started out as a company that made lenses for telescopes and rifles. That's right, and then then they made these sort of cute little uh, crystal animals. Uh, but now they've gone on to be a fashion accessory and they adorn every Oscar ceremony. And, and that's partly because of the, um, a change of view within the internal leadership of the company.
0: I have one so final was- question. I'm just c- conscious of your time as uh, Ken, um, cause it's morning time where you are in LA right now. Um, And I really wanted to ask you this. Back in 1998, which um, I can't believe it's 21 years ago now, you led a UK government commission on creativity, education, and the economy. And your report was called All Our Futures, Creativity, Culture, and Education, which was described by the Times newspaper as um, a report which raises some of the most important issues facing business in the 21st century, and specifically, uh, it should have every CEO and human resources director thumping the table and demanding action. So, so a question arises in my mind: It's 21 years since that report about business in the 21st century. Should CEOs and HR directors still be thumping the table? Uh, where are we now? Do you think?
1: Well, it's should absolutely uh, the, the report was addressed in three directions to. It was, it was main focus was the education system, uh, but it, it was also addressed to the corporate world and to the policymakers. And the reason for that is that all of these three areas are synergistic and interdependent. Now, the business world depends upon the, uh, the success and outcomes of the formal education system. There's ta- there's been for a long time. There's been a tacit uh, understanding between you know, the economy, between business and the education system, that if schools did their thing, that people would come out at the other end, super qualified to find work and, and live a life that was productive and interesting. Um, that contract broke down a long time ago. When, when I was growing up, the idea was if you went to school, uh, did well, went to college, got a degree, you get a job for life. Nobody thinks that's true anymore. And, and it's not because kids are less smart, on the contrary. It's not because teachers are less dedicated, on the contrary. It's the system's skewed. It's rooted in an old model, an old paradigm. The world is changing so rapidly, so quickly. Demands are so different. Um, you know, Nobody expects companies to be around now for the next 50 or 100 years. And particularly now, as AI starts to move into a serious phase of development, and we've been talking about it for a very long time. But you know, one estimate is that AI, this is from Jack Ma, will uh, wipe away 40% of existing jobs. Uh, in the next twenty years, and and not just not just jobs that uh, mechanical robots can do, but jobs that we thought relied upon human judgment. You know, jobs in the law, in medicine, in the service sector, in retail. And this is a this is a major disruption that's heading our way. I mean, companies have to wake up. To, I know companies are thinking hard about it, but it has deep implications. I'm working on something now called the human advantage, because what really what I want to say to people is that the the there's no point our competing with our own inventions here and, and you know trying to educate people to do what machines will do much better and more effectively than they will we have to look at what it is that what human beings can uniquely and distinctively do and these are the human qualities of creativity of critical thinking of collaboration compassion citizenship and so on and we need to develop these things deliberately Deliberately and purposefully in our education systems, but also to do that in concert with the needs of the of the economy. These things are shifting and need to be aligned in a different kind of way. So, I want CEOs to get involved more in the conversation about education, and for there to be a closer a closer interaction a different type of understanding between these sectors. I don't mean that education is only about preparing people for jobs, but uh, and it's not. And I talk about that at some length in the book. But the fact is that the The current system was not designed for the for the present circumstances, and it has to change radically. and th- This is, from a company point of view, a matter of great urgency. You know, we, the we yeah. know it, it's 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 true in not just here; it's true in America; it's true all around the world. Uh, people are trying to grapple with it, and then you you wrap around that the the climate crisis in the in the natural environment, which is real and deepening, and we have a series of major challenges on our hand, and they're the themes of the book. You know that we are living in revolutionary times to meet the challenges we have to think differently about ourselves and if we if we're able to do that then we'll see we have to run our organizations our schools our political systems and our companies differently as well on that note
0: sir ken thank you so much for speaking to us this morning on the program
1: it's a great pleasure mark thanks for asking me thank you
0: Thank you, Sir Ken, for coming on the show this morning and speaking to us live from LA. And thank you to Kate Robinson for making today's episode possible. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for taking the time out of your week to listen to another episode of the show here on trainingbusiness.com. This is the Training Business Podcast. As I said in the intro to today's episode, we have an episode every single Thursday, so please come back again next week. Now, you can visit the website, of course, trainingbusiness.com. We're currently revamping that, uh, but you can find the podcast, as always, on podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, and on Spotify. And we love you to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts because this helps us to promote the show and to attract the kinds of guests who can and want to help you with your training business journey. We've an episode every Thursday, as I said. So next week, we've another episode for you lined up. I look forward to your company. So until then, keep hustling. Take care. Bye-bye.